Abraham Lincoln was a remarkable man, no doubt about it. His gifts as a public speaker, political debater, and storyteller are well known. But did you know that when he was a teenager, Lincoln was the number one champion wrestler of Illinois? He had toured the state competing in wrestling matches, and he won so often that eventually no one wanted to go against him. Not many people know that. And not many people know about another of his amazing gifts. He was psychic. There's no doubt that Abraham Lincoln was certainly the most psychic of all the U.S. presidents. It's believed that Lyndon B. Johnson was second, but that's another story. Throughout his life, Lincoln had premonitions of the future. This is a specific psychic ability called precognition or second sight. In dreams and waking visions, he could see major events happening miles away or foretell what was going to happen to him in the future. From the time of his presidential campaign up to the day he died, Lincoln had eight premonitions that we know of, preparing him to accept his inevitable violent destiny when his purpose came to an end. I'm Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller, and this is episode eight of my podcast, Hysteria. It's history of nightmares coming true. Premonition number one. In the presidential election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln was the Republican candidate in a tumultuous, bitter battle with the Democratic candidate Stephen Douglas. Just days before the election, Lincoln was in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, standing in the street and chatting with a few friends about the dire possibility of a war between the southern and northern states. Folks could hardly talk about anything else. Some people, like Lincoln, were trying to find some way to avert such a disaster, but most were actually excited about the possibility. Whether their stance was for or against slavery, for or against limiting states' rights, or for or against expanding slavery into the Western territories, everyone agreed on one thing, that those who opposed them would crumble like dry cookies on the battlefield. Even more, they believed that their opponents should face that humiliating defeat for their unreasonable, immoral attitudes, that they should be taught a lesson they'll never forget. Suddenly, in the middle of a sentence, Lincoln fell silent, and a curious expression came over his face. After a long, uneasy moment, he seemed to snap out of it, then spoke up and said, Gentlemen, you may be surprised and think it strange. But when the doctor here was describing a war, I distinctly saw myself, in second sight, bearing an important part in that strife. This disconnection wasn't at all an unusual thing for Lincoln to do. Ever since he was a boy, people had noted periods when Abe would suddenly go into his own world, staring off into space for minutes at a time, completely unaware that people were talking to him. Lincoln would come out of these strange intervals like one awakened from sleep, as friends described. His law partner, William Herndon, said Lincoln was, quote, a peculiar, mysterious man with a double consciousness, a double life. Psychics call such trances astral projection, casting one's consciousness across time and space to see faraway events as they happen or as they might happen. During a presidential dinner at the White House, 
One French diplomat counted 20 such unsettling trances experienced by Lincoln in a single evening. Premonition number two. On the night of the presidential election, after all the votes were tallied, Abraham Lincoln lost the election. He only got 40% of the popular vote. But Lincoln won a big victory in the Electoral College, 70%. So, despite the fact that he didn't win a single southern state, and he had lost the popular vote, Abraham Lincoln still became our 16th president of the United States. And that pissed off a whole lot of people. Later that evening of the election, Lincoln slipped away from the victory parties to go rest in his rooms for a bit. His feet probably hurt from all the dancing, his hand aching from too many hearty handshakes, his head eh, a little tipsy from all those congratulatory champagne toasts. (laughs) As he sat down on the sofa, he could see his face reflected in a mirror on the wall. He thought to himself that he looked tired. The campaign had been long and hard, even frightening sometimes. He wondered if he should grow a beard. His friends all said it would make him look more presidential, but he wasn't sure. Just then he noticed something peculiar. There in the mirror were two separate yet distinct reflections on his face. He blinked in surprise and the image vanished. But then, just as he figured it must have been the champagne, it slowly reappeared, even clearer than before. The first face was normal, healthy, and full color, but there, set off about three inches from the first image, was his face again, but this face was ghastly pale, with sunken eyes and thin, drawn cheeks. It looked like a corpse, like his corpse. He blinked again and the vision disappeared, so after a moment he brushed the incident off as extreme tiredness, champagne, Oh, and a warped mirror. Yes, that must have been it. But over the next few days, he kept seeing that same double image in different mirrors time and time again. He told his wife Mary about it. But even though she'd be standing right there looking in the mirror with him, she couldn't see that deathly second face, though he could see it clearly. Mary, always a strong believer in the supernatural, thought this was a sign It meant that the first healthy face represented his first term as president. The second corpse-like face represented his second term, but he would die before that term ended. Gee, what a lovely thing for a wife to say to her husband on the proudest day of his life, huh? Hey, honey, congrats on becoming president. You're going to die. But Mary had very good reason to worry. From the beginning of his campaign and all through his presidency, Lincoln received a constant flow of death threats, mostly because of his stand against slavery. Threats had been hurled at rallies and every day brought menacing letters sent by anonymous authors promising to kill him and his family, all designed to intimidate and sway him from his course. Psychics from every state and across the Atlantic had a field day predicting his early demise. And, in fact, he survived several assassination attempts, like the time when Lincoln and his family first took the train from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C., 
the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency found a bomb in a hat box stashed just a few seats away from where the first family was sitting. To throw off any further assassination plot, they had to quickly devise a false itinerary and successfully sneak to the first family into the capital through various covert means. Premonition number three. During the war, Lincoln's precognitive abilities seemed to grow stronger. This is illustrated by a strange incident recorded in the official records of the War Department. The record states that very late one night, President Lincoln burst into the telegraph office in a full-blown panic. He ordered the operator on duty to get a message out to the Union commanders immediately because Confederate soldiers are about to cut through the Union lines. The confused telegraph operator asked how the president had received this information. Nothing had come through the wire, but Lincoln frantically yelled out, Good God, man, I saw it! He saw it in a dream. Premonition number four. The extreme toll of wartime leadership weighed heavily on Lincoln. He sometimes said that he felt the reason he was born was to lead America through this time. But when his favorite son, Willie, died in February 1862 after a short illness, Abe Lincoln's spirit was utterly crushed. It didn't help that Mary began to lose her grip on sanity, experiencing wild mood swings, headaches, sudden rages. After Willie's death, she became obsessed with spiritualism, inviting a parade of psychics to the White House for seances to speak with her dead son once more. Lincoln may have attended a few of those seances himself. He mostly suffered bouts of the blackest, fatalistic depression and terrible insomnia. On those sleepless nights, the president would walk the corridors of the White House for hours until dawn, wearing a dark stole over his shoulders to keep off the chill. He did this so often that for a century afterward, White House staff frequently encountered his ghost walking the halls, huddled in his warm stole. Lincoln claimed to feel the presence of his son, Willie, walking by his side during those midnight walks, or sometimes standing with him at his desk in the Oval Office, speaking with him. Willie's ghost comforted and reassured Abe Lincoln in his darkest hours. So it's understandable why, a year after Willie's death, Abe and Mary were reluctant to give in to the pleading of their youngest son, 10-year-old Tad, who desperately wanted a pistol to play with. Tad's friends... The Taft children, Bud, Holly, and Julia Taft, all a few years older, all had their own cap pistols, and together they played at commanding armies in war, just like kids have ever since we lived in caves. Tad was the only one without a gun to play with, and no doubt felt left out. Finally, Lincoln, away from the White House at the time, wrote to the colonel in charge of the Washington Arsenal, telling him to go ahead, let Tad have a pistol big enough to snap caps but no cartridges or powder, of course. It would make a satisfying bang noise, but not harm anybody. We could only imagine Tad's thrill when he got his own pistol. And I'm sure on that day, he shot down the imaginary armies of Robert E. Lee by the score. But Tad's joy was not to last. Less than a month later, Lincoln, still away from the White House, wrote a brief note to Mary. 
think you better put Tad's pistol away. I had an ugly dream about him. I don't envy Mary's job in having to take away her son's favorite toy, but Mary wouldn't have hesitated. She believed that her husband's dreams were true premonitions long before Abe ever did. Now, this dream could easily be explained as just a parent's natural worry over giving their son a gun to play with. Psychology calls it a parental anxiety dream, and parents have been having them ever since we lived in caves and gave our children obsidian knives to play war with. But maybe Abraham Lincoln's dream was more than a parent's natural anxiety. You see, there's a first-hand account by one of Tad's former playmates, Julia Taft, when she was older, that hints at the intriguing possibility that Abe's dream had been a genuine premonition, one that may have thwarted a disaster involving another of their sons. One afternoon, a week before he got his pistol, Tad had borrowed Julia's gun as they played. In his excitement, he immediately pointed it directly in Bud's face and pulled the trigger and it fired. It was loaded with caps, so there was only a brief spark and a loud noise, and Bud wasn't hurt. But Julia snatched the gun out of Tad's hands, and all three children scolded him harshly. But at Tad's begging, they agreed to not tell his parents. And a week later, unaware of this incident, Abe and Mary gave Tad his own gun. Obviously, Tad wasn't yet mature enough to be trusted with a gun. So was an awful tragedy averted by his father's dream? Premonition number five. Starting from the end of March 1865, Lincoln's terrible dream premonitions started coming fast and furious. Which is strange, since the war was finally coming to an end. The Confederate capital of Richmond had fallen, and the Northern armies were celebrating victory over the impoverished South. So why would anxiety dreams be plaguing Lincoln even more than usual? For example, on March 24, 1865, Mary Todd Lincoln, away with her husband near the front lines in Virginia, sent an urgent message back to their housekeeper at the White House asking that she send a telegram as soon as you receive this and say if all is right at the house. The housekeeper didn't jump fast enough because the very next day, the White House guard got a telegram from Mary Lincoln demanding to know why the housekeeper didn't reply back and to send word about the house immediately. Mary didn't even wait for a reply. She ran straight back to Washington, D.C., Shortly afterwards, she sent a letter to Abe on the front, reassuring him that all was well. The dream that he had on the night of March 23rd of the White House burning to the ground had not come true, as they had both feared. Now, this dream could have been inspired by the fact that they just got the Confederate capital, expressing Lincoln's fears that a Southern sympathizer might get revenge by torching the White House. But maybe the Lincolns misinterpreted this dream, as it's all too easy to do. In classic dream interpretation theory, the house represents ourselves, the person, the dreamer's body. And to envision their house burning down symbolizes some great transformation of the body will occur, meaning either good or calamity. Premonition number six. On April 9, 1865, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant, ending four bloody years of war. 
Washington, D.C. erupted into riotous celebrations that lasted days. The years seemed to drop from Lincoln's face, and he began to smile and tell jokes again, just like he used to do back in Springfield. But there was one dark cloud still hanging over Lincoln. A strange dream he'd had, amazingly realistic, that was haunting him ever since the night it came to him, around the night of March 30th. A dream that would not release its grip. Here is what he said about it to Mary and their longtime friend, Colonel Ward Hill Lehman, who recalled it in his later book about Lincoln. About ten days ago, I retired late. I had been up waiting for important dispatches from the front. I could not have been long in bed when I fell into a slumber, for I was weary. I soon began to dream. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. There the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing. But the mourners were invisible. I went from room to room. No living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. There was light in all the rooms. Every object was familiar to me. Where were all the people who were grieving as if their hearts would break? I was puzzled and alarmed. What could be the meaning of all this? Determined to find the cause of a state of things so mysterious and so shocking, I kept on until I arrived at the East Room, which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque, on which rested a corpse, wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse, whose face was covered, others weeping pitifully. Who is dead in the White House? I demanded of one of the soldiers. The president was his answer. He was killed by an assassin. Then came a loud burst of grief from the crowd, which awoke me from my dream. I slept no more that night, and although it was only a dream, I have been strangely annoyed by it ever since. Lincoln went on to say that he couldn't get back to sleep afterwards, so unsettled was he by the awful nightmare. So he got up to read the Bible for a bit, and the book randomly opened to Genesis 28, the story about Jacob's Ladder, one of the Bible's most epic dream visions. He flipped a few pages, and it seemed to randomly land on another prophet's dream. Every time he randomly turned to another passage, it was about a dream. Abe reportedly said, It is strange how much there is in the Bible about dreams. If we believe the Bible, we must accept the fact that in the old days God and his angels came to men in their sleep and made themselves known by dreams. When Lincoln saw how upset Mary and his friend were to hear this frightening dream, Lincoln hastily assured them that the so-called president in the vision was some other fellow, and not him. But this might have been a crucial turning point for Abe, one in which he finally started to believe that his dreams could really be foretellings from God. Lincoln was a supremely logical man, and always seemed to rationalize away even his most uncanny premonitions. But this dream was different. So utterly real, so amazingly detailed in every way, immediately followed by the peculiar way the Bible pages kept landing on the dream visions of prophets 
that maybe Lincoln started taking his gift with the utmost seriousness and the fatalistic, grim future it was unfolding for him. Premonition number seven. On the morning of April 14th, 1865, Good Friday, Lincoln met with members of his cabinet, including General Ulysses S. Grant, Attorney General James Speed, Assistant Secretary of State Frederick Seward, and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. They were waiting on Secretary of the War Edwin Stanton, who was running late. While waiting, Lincoln announced that something momentous would happen today. He didn't know what it would be, but he was absolutely sure it was coming. He explained that he had a dream last night, the same frightening dream he'd had several times, always before something of great import happened. After the first time he had the dream, the very next day they received the news about the Battle of Bull Run, when the Union Army of the Potomac was very nearly destroyed. He said he dreamt it again on another occasion. He didn't say when, but it's thought to be the night before Willie's death. And now, Just last night, he'd had that same terrible dream again. In the dream, he's in a single, indescribable ship, alone in a boundless, dark ocean, with no oars, sail, or rudder, yet it still moves inexorably toward an unseen, misty shore. It was terrifying. I'm helpless. I drift. I drift! Most of his cabinet members said it was coincidence. Others laughed and said it couldn't foretell any defeat. The war had already ended. General Lee had signed the surrender at Appomattox. They were only waiting to hear final confirmation of the Confederate surrender in North Carolina. Surely this Good Friday would be a great day of victory for the Union. Anything more that Lincoln might have said about the ominous dream went unspoken forever since the president cut off in the middle of a sentence when Stanton finally arrived, and they got down to business. Lincoln's final premonition. Later that same afternoon of April 14th, Lincoln told his security chief, Colonel Crook, about his rash of disturbing dreams since mid-March. This news made Crook uneasy, and he requested to be the president's bodyguard for that evening's post-war festivities. But Lincoln said, no, no, even bodyguards need a night off now and then. Soon after, the president left the Oval Office to get ready for the evening. And Mary wanted to see a new comedy playing to rave reviews at the Ford Theater. It was one of the reasons why, long ago, Mary Todd chose to marry Abraham Lincoln over her other powerful suitor, Stephen Douglas. She wanted a husband who would take her to the theater. As President Lincoln stepped out of the door of the Oval Office, he paused. He turned back and then said, Goodbye, Crook. Crook later stated that he thought it was strange that the president would say that, and in such a significant tone of voice as he described it. Oh, sure, Lincoln always said, Good night, Crook, as he left the Oval Office at the end of each day. But this was the first time ever that Lincoln said goodbye and not good night. As a deeply religious man, did Abraham Lincoln go to the theater on that Good Friday evening thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing he was going to his death, yet telling his loyal followers to step aside and let it happen, fully accepting his destiny as the final necessary sacrifice 
that would truly bring an end to that long, bloody war of brother against brother. On April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth while watching the play My American Cousin at Fourth Theater. He died hours later without ever regaining consciousness. He was the first president in America's 89-year history to be assassinated. Booth was confident the South would rally to his side, declare him a hero for ending the tyrant, and start to fight again. He was shocked to the core to discover just how wrong he was. People on both sides were exhausted, utterly spent by war, death, and horror. So instead of rallying, the South did the opposite. They grieved. The entire nation spasmed with collective shock and heartache over the news. People fainted, took to their beds, inconsolable with grief. The suicide rate spiked in pace with the spread of the news of the president's death. In the North, those rumored to be Southern sympathizers didn't dare step out their door for fear of being beaten or killed. Even Lincoln's fiercest political enemies mourned his loss. A special funeral train was commissioned to bear the president's body from Washington, D.C. to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, taking a roundabout journey of 1,700 miles so that a nation could view its fallen leader for the last time. Jet black with gleaming brass fittings, this brand new engine, christened the Union, was heavily draped in garlands of black crepe, American flags, and black streamers. Above the engine's cowcatcher was a framed portrait of Lincoln. The Union pulled eight cars carrying 300 important personages, including an honor guard, military band, and Lincoln's oldest son, Robert. Mary Lincoln had had a total nervous breakdown and was judged too distraught to make the journey. The second to the last car was a special extra-wide luxury parlor car made exclusively for the president's use. Ironically, the first and only time a president ever used it was for this trip. This car held the president's casket. At 8 a.m. on April 21st, it began its journey. Through Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, Indiana, on up to Chicago, then down to Springfield. An estimated seven million mourners lined the railway tracks to catch a glimpse of the train and slain president, the largest crowd ever assembled in American history. In Richmond, Indiana alone, 15,000 people turned up at three o'clock in the morning to pay homage, weep, and stare in reverence at the grim spectacle. At last, the funeral train arrived in Springfield, Illinois, the morning of May 3rd. After a period of lying in state, Lincoln was buried at Oak Ridge Cemetery. The sad journey of Lincoln's funeral train had come to an end. Or did it? In the years that passed, people have encountered a ghostly westbound train, always in the last week of April the same time that Lincoln's funeral train took its journey. All the sightings have been along the exact route the funeral train took, even in places where the track had been pulled up and destroyed long ago, seen gliding effortlessly through fields of wheat, 
even through buildings. All the sightings are eerily similar. As reported in the Albany Evening Times in 1965, the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's death. It's at night in the last week of April along the New York Central Line. A heavy fog suddenly forms in mere seconds, cloaking the night in a mysterious moonlit haze. The familiar sounds of crickets and frogs abruptly fall silent. All of a sudden, looming out from the veiled darkness, there appears an old-fashioned train engine moving at a slow, solemn pace. Jet black, steam billowing from its stack and sides, brass fittings gleaming with a strange, phosphorescent glow in the moonlight. Sometimes the witness will hear a tolling engine bell. Other times a band is playing dirges. But otherwise the train is utterly soundless. No grind of iron wheels, no choo-choo-choo sound of the engine, no hiss of steam. The entire train glides noiselessly over the rails like carpet. Awestruck, the eyewitness counts eight train cars, slowly trailing behind the ghostly engine, each heavily decked with black crepe garlands, streamers, and American flags fluttering in a breeze that isn't there. All the window shades are drawn shut, except in the second-to-the-last car before the caboose. In that car, larger than the rest, the eyewitnesses see a gleaming casket surrounded by a military honor guard wearing dark blue uniforms from a century long past. As the train passes, vanishing into the night, all the clocks and watches in the vicinity stop. Folklore? Storytelling grandfathers pulling your leg? Or is it true? Did the intense grief of seven million Americans who witnessed firsthand Lincoln's funeral train somehow etch the mournful sight into time and space so that its phantom reappears on the anniversary of its journey? Maybe someday we'll know. Hysteria is written, researched, recorded, produced, edited, so on and so forth by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. Hey, while your app is still open, would you please take a moment to give me a starred rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast provider you use? And be sure to subscribe to get upcoming Hysteria episodes automatically downloaded on your device once a month. If you like my stories and storytelling and want to show your appreciation tips are welcome. And you get a personal thank you from me. It's real easy. Just visit hysteria.com and click the Send Diane a Tip link. It's safe and secure, all done through Patreon, the crowdfunding site for creatives. Tip levels start at just $1 a month, and tippers get special personalized thank yous and rewards based on your level of support. Like Dave Madalinsky of Aurora, Illinois, who just tipped me $5 a month and helped me out as the voice of Abe Lincoln in this episode. Thank you, Dave. You were great. I loved what you did with Abe. Again, just visit hysteria.com to learn how to become a patron. And thank you, as always, for listening to Hysteria. It's history of nightmares coming true. <laughs>